You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. We are at Optic 2017, and our guests, Lance Keimig and Chris Nicholson from National Parks at Night. Okay, Chris, is, you did a return visit for you. We had you as a guest last year. And for Lance, this is your the first time. It it's is your first indeed. time with us. We'll be gentle. It'll be good, I promise you. Lance is the author of Night Photography and Light Painting, colon, Finding Your Way in the Dark. Okay, a wonderful book on night photography, and that's going to be the topic of today's conversation. Chris Nicholson is the author of? Chris Nicholson is the author of? (laughs) Photographing National Parks, colon, colon, a guide to... Scouting and shooting America's most treasured lands. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I should memorize the subtitle. Yeah. <laughs> and just for the record, there is an autographed copy yesterday that was signed that is actually out there somewhere. It is floating and around lucky somewhere. lucky owner has that one copy. Anyway, welcome, We guys. should give away books on the hug, you know? Yeah, we should, yes. We'll do that one day. All right. Um, anyway, so today's topic is? is uh, today's topic is night photography. And we've spoken about it a lot. It's been, it's been a topic that is increasingly popular, mostly because a lot of people are starting to do it, and cameras. I think that's a big part of it, too. Photography has caught up, the camera gears that we're using. It's possible now to do amazing long exposures in situations where a few years ago it was ridiculously difficult and very few people even bothered trying. So we're going to try to talk about what was compared to what is. And, and Lance, you started off in shooting film. How long ago? If this is for night photography, long exposures. I did. I started shooting night photography at the same time I did picked up the camera and shot my first roll of film, which was about 1985, and um, was rather a late convert to digital because I worked so hard to develop a, uh, well, basically, if you would, a, f- a film workflow at night that worked. Did you get into photography just because you like photography, or did you get into it because you wanted to shoot at night? What's first? Um, well, I got into photography because my girlfriend was into photography. Uh-huh. And, um, <laughs> but the first roll of film that we shot together was in, in my bedroom with the lights turned out, waving flashlights around, pointing the, light, the flashlights at each other or at the camera. And it was... Um, did you see the Milky Way? No. Okay, I was just curious. <laughs> <laughs> But, but seriously, that was, um, you know, the photos were not that great, but it was interesting enough to kind of set me on fire for night photography, and, and that's a fire that's never gone out 30 years later. So what film are you shooting? Are we doing color or black and white? Mostly black and white. Okay. Um, I, did, uh, I did both. I really was mostly interested in black and white, and you know, worked for a long time to develop a combination of film exposures and development that gave pretty good results. Um, You know, of course, film had reciprocity failure, which was one of the things that made it difficult. It was hard to predict what the right exposure was because, you know, the longer the exposure, the longer the exposure. In other words, the the more you expose the film, the less sensitive it became. So... um, it was and, a lot of, there was how, a lot of trial and error. Can you explain how that would, how that translate, how it would look as it exposed itself more and it lost the clarity that you were looking for? Well, it didn't, didn't so much lose clarity, just sensitivity mm. so that it was this, you know, never-ending circle that the more, the more you exposed it, 
the less sensitive it became, so you needed to expose it longer. The ISO sensitivity and, diminished as the exposure went on, essentially. Right. Yeah, and the, the cool thing about that was that you could go ahead and do an eight-hour exposure and it wouldn't be overexposed because, you know, what we just said. Um, but that would mean that you could do single, very long exposures and have very long star trails going all the way through a frame. Um, Did different films have different, well, obviously, different films had different characteristics. Which films would, were best for long exposures at night? I imagine some were terrible. Yeah, um, <laughs> the, the very best was Fuji, or still is, they still make it, believe it or not, Fuji Acros, Neopan oh, Acros, sure, yeah. Yeah, is yeah. amazing. And um, that film had basically no reciprocity failure up until, uh, you know, a little more than five, five minutes or so. Uh -huh. Whereas um, when I started, was mostly shooting Tri-X, you know, theoretically a 400 speed film. And, you know, we were doing like half hour exposures at F8 under moonlight um, on Tri-X. And then when the Acros came out, it was more like 10 to 15 minutes at F8, which is theoretically a 100 ASA film. And you wouldn't know whether it worked or not until the next day when you developed the film. It was a whole different game. Right, no chimping. Not, yeah. that's exactly, yes. Yes. So at that time, you immediately were hooked with night photography. I mean, this is not even the way you explained it anyway. You guys were inside a room working with flashlights, and that was enough to kind of get you interested in, in long exposures and night photography. Or how did that that early was, process work for you? It was playing with time. Yeah. Basically, you know the the way that time would be transformed and, and compressed. You know, we'd experience time as you know as a continuous thing and. A night photograph is a compression uh, or a representation of a longer period of time in a way that we can never experience it or see it with our eyes. Um, and it also, you know, those long exposures made opportunities for things to happen. You know, rather than extracting a, you know, a fraction of a second, when you've got minutes or, you know, even hours, there's just a potential for all kinds of well, problems to happen, but also really magical and interesting. Well, surprises interesting that come things. along yeah, unexpected. Yeah. And were there any problems that exist? I'm sure there were, but can you tell us some of the problems that existed in the, when you were shooting with film that might come up in that exposure time and, and compare that to now and, and some of those problems that have... One thing I was curious on that same line of questioning, uh, aside from the fact that the longer you exposed, the longer you had to expose because it would lose sensitivity, was there any kind of blooming or uh, artifacts that would come across on film? For, not, say from point lights, would they start to? Would you get any kind of anything happening with sure, that? Sure, but not as a result of reciprocity failure. Um, and the early people doing night photography on um, basically night photography wasn't really possible until the 1870s when the dry plate was invented, because the wet plates had to be coated, exposed, and developed before the emulsion dried on the plate, and they, it was so insensitive that it just wasn't possible. So in the late 1870s, the dry, dry plate came out, and which was a, an emulsion on a piece of glass or a metal plate. And the negative process on glass created a reflection off of the back of the surface of the glass called oh, halation. Yeah, 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 so okay. shooting into light sources on those early glass plates left basically donuts around any kind of light source. And you can see that on, on old mostly 19th century, early 20th century night photographs. Um, I think it was a, around, um, Stiglitz was one of the first night photographers to use the 
plates, newer, new and improved plates with anti-halation coating that, on the back that you know, minimize that problem. Even, um, even the film that we used up until, well, if you're still shooting film up until today, has an anti-halation coating on it to prevent that kind of glare from backlighting situations. So let's jump forward to the 80s when you're shooting and, and some of the, uh, the 1980s. And, 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 yeah, right. I'm not that old. <laughs> and some of the issues that, that were coming up. Well, one of the, one of the issues that uh, I've encountered frequently ranged from curious onlookers to curious security guards and policemen because, you know, it's dark out. Why would you want to take pictures? Right. It's, there's no light. You can't take pictures. And that's, uh, that's something that's... The one of the very first night photographers, Paul Martin, an English photographer at the end of the 19th century, was photographing um, London later and later into the night and being followed around by policemen with lanterns raising, you know, walking into his photograph and raising the lantern up. And he wrote about this in his biography. And it's so, he, you know, he'd see the cops coming and take his hat off and put it over the lens. And that's something that, you know, we still have to do today. And, and Having been doing night photography since the 80s, it's, you know, it, it became more and more popular and more and more common. And then 9-11 happened and that changed everything as well. Even though there's never been any terrorism events that related to photography, I can't tell you how many times I've been standing under a bridge taking a half hour exposure very conspicuously. And, you know, cops come up and say, what are you doing? You can't take a picture of this bridge. Well, actually, I had a similar experience in New Jersey, New Brunswick. It was uh, at night. I was doing some night photography there, and all of a sudden, two squad cars pulled up with their lights from two different directions. What are you doing? I had no idea there was a federal building. It was just I was just doing a detail on the corner, and they give me the third degree. And yeah, I'm, I, I'm there at night on a Sunday evening. There's no one in the streets, and I'm taking pictures of a federal building. Well, yeah, I guess I'd stop and ask questions too. But yeah, the suspicions are up a lot. At what point did you start playing around with digital? Because the earliest digital cameras were nothing to write home about. At what point did you say, hey, this is worth experimenting with? Which, which camera was the first one that proved useful for night photography? Um, well, I had been teaching night photography at the uh, New England School of Photography in Boston. And when I started, it was pretty much entirely film. and starting to get digital cameras coming through um, maybe 2001, 2002. Uh -huh. And at that time, they were limited to pretty much 30-second exposures at native ISO. Otherwise, they were just too noisy to be useful. Um, I was shooting uh, commercial architecture at the time, and that was one of the later things to transition. So I was still shooting uh, you know, 4 by 5 film. Um, and I was also photographing artwork for galleries and museums, which was pretty much the very last thing to transition from film to digital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I got, um, I took the plunge in uh, 2005 and bought the 5D, the original 5D. And um, that was really, I, th I think one of the, that, that and the uh, D700 were the cameras that made Night photography, digital night photography, uh, practical. Mm -hmm. What are you using now? Uh, seven hundred and fifty D750. Okay, that camera. That camera comes up a lot. A lot of people are using that camera. Yeah, just remarkable high ISO performance and and uh, ability to lift underexposed shadows without bringing a whole lot of noise in there. Um, in fact, 
uh, Jill Waterman did for the Explorer blog a, a piece on switching from Canon to right. Nikon. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're, I'm, I'm not really a gear loyalist in, for one or the other. There are advantages and disadvantages to every piece of equipment. I imagine if, if you have a specific... Uh, um, occupation or, 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 or subject matter like here it's very specific it's night photography and it has very specific parameters and requirements you can't really be loyal you have to go with what tool is now the state of the art for what I need to get the best picture the neatest picture at the time yeah except that there isn't there hasn't been this one camera that has it all there know, never just, will be yeah. either have you played around any of the Sony cameras the A7S particular oh yeah it's amazing um, and again, there's you know the, the situation where no cameras got everything. The the uh, the image quality is fantastic. The high ISO performance is fantastic. The image on the live view of that camera is extraordinary in low light conditions, which is by the way one of the things I don't like about the Nikon cameras is the live view is really noisy in low light conditions. Ah, okay. But the image quality is a lot better than the Canon cameras that I'd used previously. So. Can we jump back into during the film years? What kind of camera were you using, or did you switch a lot, and specifically for night photography? Okay, um, started out with a Canon A1 was my first first film camera. Um, that was a first film camera for a lot of people. Yeah, AE1 or A1. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. And then um, uh, shot with T90s for a long time. That was a you know really the awesome pro pro Canon camera before autofocus and. Uh, I actually never bought an autofocus camera until I switched to digital. So I went from a T90 to uh, a 5D. But um, mostly I was using Hasselblad equipment and uh, an Ebony 6x9 view camera. Ah, so, okay. Which I still, I still have that one and still use it on occasion. And that's, uh, Do you find, so how would you compare the digital cameras using today to the larger format black and white cameras that you used to shoot with film? Um, there's not much of a comparison, really. For me, uh, the biggest part of the difference is in the process. You know, of course, with film, you've got this, you know, relationship between exposure and development mm -hmm. and choosing the right combination of chemistry and film. Um, you know, I, coming from an architectural photography background, I, night photography is kind of a natural thing because of this very slow and methodical way of working. Um, so that, you know, that makes the, the transition easier. But, um, you know, I miss working with the view camera. I, you know, I really enjoy, I, I have perspective control lenses for my digital camera, but it's, it's just not the same as... It's as, almost not quite a cigar. Yeah. They're great, and I, they're not the same. You know, I, I, I love the process of both, you know, working in the field with a, with a film camera I love that mystery of the suspense, you know, like rushing home to, I can't wait to develop this film and see if, you know, see what I got. Um, so that element of, of suspense is, is gone. But on the other hand, it's great to know that you're going home and you got it, you know? Well, there, Did you ever try to compromise and say, you know, I'm gonna shoot digital, but I'm just gonna turn the monitor off and just <laughs> make believe him shoot? Have you ever done that seriously? No, I haven't. Because you say, you know, you're missing this, there's this little element of wonder and say, did I get it? Turn off the monitor and you'll have the same experience, right or wrong? I don't think so. Because <laughs> you know yeah. you're going to cheat. But, right. but then in night photography and with long exposures, you still get some of that element of suspense, right? Because you have 
the time factor is built into it, and you have to wait to see. And even when the, the, the camera is working to process the image, there's that delay, and you have to, I mean, obviously it's not the same as going home, and, 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 and well, failure I mean, is kind of clear after you see it, but... Uh, yeah, sure, you know. that, that's absolutely true, and I, I think that's part of why it's, it's held my interest all this time, um, because there, there is, um, you know, that, that transformative element of, of compressing time. Mm -hmm. It's, I think it's less of an issue now, especially that newer cameras um, are shoot, we're shooting at higher and higher ISOs. Um, you know, back here, here's a huge difference between the film and, and digital. Um, you know, your only option was a long exposure mm -hmm. when you, when you're shooting film. You know, there, there were, there, you know, the hot, we had, uh, what, T-Max 3200 and Ilford Delta 3200, which both had really bad reciprocity failure. So they weren't, you know, you're basically shooting like a 400 speed film. And I imagine the grain was a little bit too rough on those two, right? Sure, sure. Because those, yeah, they were but, not fine grain film. Okay, well, those. think, think about shooting you know, 6400 ISO with an early DSLR, you know, mm -hmm. grain slash noise was, yeah. was a problem balls. as well. Yeah. <laughs> but, but now it's commonplace for even entry-level uh, DSLRs or, or mirrorless cameras for people to shoot at 3200, 6400, which enables for the first time um, recording stars as points of light rather mm -hmm. than star trails. So. That was part of the unique signature of, of night photography before were these long star trails. And um, now, you know, you can photograph the, the galactic cloud of the Milky Way with a you know, 10 or 15 second exposure, which was absolutely unheard of. Uh, some of the things that impressed me, um, I, I go through Gizmodo a lot. And we're all kind of junkies on that. And it's not unusual now to see that on a petapixel, for instance. People shooting handheld photographs of the Milky Way through plane windows, you know, and it's like right. the, you know, a handheld is for 12 seconds and there is a sharp picture and you can see all the detail and the wing. It's like you couldn't do this earlier than that. But does that kind of disappoint you a little bit, the fact that you can just be sitting there on a plane and just blocking off the window and hand holding stuff that you'd be knocking yourself out all night long sitting there shivering in the desert to do? No, not really. I, I, actually, I think it's pretty exciting that, that these kind of things are possible. Um, you know, how long is it going to be before we can stand with our phone and, and you know, just do a fraction of a second Milky Way photograph? Maybe, maybe not, but it's certainly getting closer. Um, but, you know, there are going to be people who, who do that, and then there are going to be people who are devoted to the craft of you know, fine photography, whether it's night photography or, or any other kind of photography, you know. Now everyone is a photographer, but not everyone is a good photographer, and no, everyone will never be a good photographer. I would say everyone's a photographer, but not everybody who knows how to take a picture. Maybe yeah. we can <laughs> we jump over to Chris here. And, and, and yeah, how you been, Chris? <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I'm and, and maybe should we get you another cup this. of coffee? <laughs> maybe just talk a little bit about this idea that I would imagine that for you guys, and other night photographers that, that, you know, the process is, is half the fun. I mean, it, being out there at night, maybe it gets cold, maybe you get tired and whatnot, but, you know, being out and spending that time and even the time during exposures when you're talking with friends and you're with people, I imagine that's half of the pleasure, half the Ab reason you're doing absolutely. it. Absolutely. Know? And mean, it, it's something that I think Lance and I were just talking about a month or two ago when we were in Joshua Tree. During a long exposure. During a long no exposure. Doubt. There's lots of time to talk. Um, <laughs> 
But I was thinking about, you know, like uh, I was traveling with Matt Hill last year, who's another of our business partners. And um, Matt, I, I find Matt funny because after a shoot, we could be out until three in the morning. We get back to the hotel and Matt cracks open his computer, dumps his cards and he sits there editing. He doesn't go to sleep oh, yeah. until he's, you know, until he's, he's done. It's like, oh, I got these four great photos. I'm so excited about it. And then he can go to sleep. Me, I, I can wait weeks before doing that. <laughs> Um, not that I always do. I mean, I do like to see the photos, but you know, I get back to the hotel at three in the morning, I go to sleep and you know, I'll dump the cards, but just for the safety of the data, yeah. I'm perfectly fine waiting until I get home a week later well, to go through the photos. A, another thrill three weeks later, right? Yeah, I guess. But it was something that, you know, Lance and I were talking about it and I started to think, well, why is that? Why am I not as excited about, you know, seeing the photos right away? As Matt is, and, and you're kind of you're closer to Matt, right? So you you can get back to the hotel and edit, but not quite as drastic. For the record, <laughs> I've never processed film at three in the morning. The film, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I started thinking about it, and I realized I that, for, that for me, <laughs> such a big part of the fun is the being out shooting, and you know, being in the national parks and um, out in these beautiful places that are quiet and in the middle of the wilderness and it's the experience um, the experience yeah and finding the photos and working on them and you know working the angles working the scene and it's for me and i've just realized this recently it's so much about the experience and i love the photography i I love going through the images later and like you know seeing them up on the displays here at a conference Mm -hmm. and stuff i mean Mm -hmm. yeah that's great but I, I guess for me, yeah, it's being out there. Let me ask you, I mean, you guys have shot together a lot of times in mm-hmm. a lot of places, I'm sure a lot of long nights. Uh, has anybody ever like unintentionally, uh, you know, ruined someone's photo? Like so, someone goes off Actually to go to the bathroom the and, and you run around with a flashlight and, and kind of uh, mess with the other guys? Did stuff? you say intentionally or unintentionally? <laughs> I said intentionally, <laughs> but you know, let's just talk stories well, either way. Yeah, and, and, and but once an names. hour maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, in, in a workshop situation, it's kind of okay. inevitable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even you know, even out just even if it's just Lance and I shooting, it, yeah. it's going to happen. Yeah. You know, it's just it's part of the nature. You know, we there's an etiquette involved. Um, you know, there's best practice. I you know say I'm about to light up a flashlight so I can focus or mm-hmm. light paint something. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll say Lance, are you open? Right. You know, and um, if he is, then I'll wait. And if he's not, I can go ahead with it. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you get caught up in the moment or you don't hear somebody or you know so it happens yeah. and it's something you just have to understand when you go out there sure. I am I am going to mess up somebody's shot at some point and somebody's <laughs> going to mess up mine and you just roll with it yeah. Um, yeah. and there's things you can do to deal with it too yeah. you know uh, sometimes if somebody turns on a light in the, in the middle of my, my exposure maybe a car goes by or somebody's flash I'll just let it finish because yeah. who knows there might be magic be that happened yeah. Yeah, in yeah. that moment in fact I was just joking with Lance um Last week, we uh, two weeks ago, we finished up our workshop in Cape Cod National Seashore. And the last night we were out shooting, and I um, I was doing a photo, just a dune fence with the dunes and the stars in the background. And right as I started my first one, one of the workshop students was leaving, and she turned on her headlamp or something. Mm. And I said, like, oh, great, you know, there's a four-minute exposure down the tubes. I spent another 45 minutes there lighting it different ways myself and did not come up with the lighting situation I liked as much as that headlamp that turned on Interesting. Yeah. on the first one. And that's yeah. the shot I ended up keeping. There you go. There What's you the go. biggest surprise you've ever had when you open up a file and say, wow, look at where that, where that come from? What kind of thing, because things do happen. Yeah. What, would, what was the most pleasant surprise or goofiest surprise you've ever had when, as far as seeing something that showed up in a picture that you didn't even know existed? 
Uh, I can think of one photograph in particular um, where there was an airplane trail that, that made a big arc through the sky in like a, a C pattern that was reflected, not reflected, but it was also the, the opposite pattern was in the ground in a, a concrete area, this circular pattern. So the, the Coincidentally, sea the, the sea and the sky just connected beautifully with this backward sea in the ground and made this big S that oh, went wow. right through the frame and just completed the composition in a way that it would have been a whole lot less interesting had that plane not gone through there. Neat. Example, yeah. Most of the time, planes, though, are, you know... Pain in the butt. A real pain in the butt. Yeah. It seems that a, a lot of the national parks are under the flight path, so... <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, LA and San Francisco. <laughs> I want to talk more about some of the, the during the film era, and maybe you could talk about your process and how you came to calculate exposure times and how you work when you can't check your image after the fact. And to add on to that, light meters in a day of film were they even worth considering? Not at all. Yeah, that's what I figured. Okay. No, autofocus was pretty much useless, and for the most part, light meters are not particularly useful. In low light situations, uh, moonlight or less, the meters just aren't accurate. And in urban situations where you've got little pinpoint light sources and lots of dark areas, that it's just not, you can't really get a good reading. Um, I, um, once I realized that night photography was something I wanted to pursue seriously, I moved to San Francisco to study with a guy named Steve Harper who um, developed the first college-level class on night photography. So a, a lot of um, what I learned was, was through Steve and his classes. And basically, it was just a lot of experimenting and, and note-taking in different conditions. Um, and you had to repeat, you know, repeat it over and over again and compare notes and compare films. Um, I was, you know, I never went to the point of uh, you know, plotting film curves on a densitometer, but I certainly would, you know, work to improve my negatives so that I could make, you know, as close to straight print as possible without a lot of darkroom manipulation. And it was, you know, again, just trial and error using different combinations of film uh, and chemistry um, exposures. I basically had, uh, you know, a chart that would be, you know, updated over time, you know, that there was an, an exposure guideline and a separate uh, uh, film development guideline. What kind of developer did you use? What was your favorite? For um, I, gotta, I just have to throw in plotting please. film curves on a, what are, like, who even knows what that means? Yeah. Like, the depth of your knowledge just blows me away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Usually plotting that kind of stuff is done by photographers who spend so much time plotting exposures, they never take pictures. Okay. That is so true. <laughs> right? That is absolutely so true. Yeah. I, I hate to insult the geeks, but I know too many people that's, that make a, their career is measuring their apertures and their lenses there. So it's not really five, six or F8. It's like, who cares? <laughs> yeah. But yeah. They they're, get sucked the, into it and they never take a picture. Yeah. They're the guys with the eight by 10 cameras that, you know, take a picture of, you know, the side of their house and spend like six months plotting film curves to get it just right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they match that grade dead on. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the zone system. Um, <laughs> Oh, where, where the heck were we? Oh, um, developers, yeah. Uh, my, f my favorite um, 
film developer combination that was what I still work with today and I probably came to this uh, probably in the late 90s was uh, Xtal film developer and the uh, Fuji Neopan Acros film. And both um, and are still available today. Both are still available, yeah. Okay. yeah so the Xtal developer um, diluted to one to three, which is usually it's either straight or one to one, but the uh, dilute developer with reduced agitation was the way to basically keep your highlights from being blown out and, and allow the shadows to develop first or develop over time because the more densely exposed parts of your negative, the, the, the highlights would develop very quickly. And if you let the film rest in the developer without agitating it, the developer that was in contact with the highlight areas would exhaust itself. And the developer that was in contact with the less exposed shadow areas would continue to work. So um, another, uh, another favorite developer was Diafine, which sure. is a, a two-part developer where you do three minutes in A and three minutes in B. And uh, you pretty much do any, any film and get really decent negatives. The, the, the biggest challenge was you know, getting enough meat on the, on the shadow part of the negative, and then in the developing process, getting whatever information was there to develop without having blown highlights. And how much is the grain affected when you get into these longer exposures? I, I imagine it's also based on which film you're using, but uh, that's also probably a critical thing because if it starts clumping up too much, there goes your detail. Well, it, it's interesting because that's, that's one way that digital and film are pretty similar. You know, obviously grain and noise are not the same thing, but you have more grain in the shadow areas just the way you have more grain in the, in the film area, uh, in the shadow areas on, digital on digital noise. photographs. Is it so. more easy to manage, though, digitally? I would imagine it is. Um, Through post-processing? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. You know, the, the, <clears throat> what you can do in Lightroom or Photoshop far exceeds what, what we could do in the darkroom. But, you know, we would basically just print it dark. You know, so if yes. you have have lots of dark black areas with minimal shadow detail, there wasn't any grain. And how about working with color film? Did you shoot much in the in the day with color in terms of night photography? And what differences did you find? Um, yeah, the um, color negative film was certainly better than than transparency film because it had a wider reciprocity failure, uh, not wider exposure latitude. Excuse me, and. Um, the my favorite film of all time was uh, the for color was Fuji NPL uh, L for long exposure. Right. It was a, a tungsten balance film, mostly used by architectural photographers, and that was uh, it was really fun to shoot color negative film if you're doing your own printing, so C prints, you know, in in the wet darkroom, because working in mixed lighting situations there was tremendous opportunity for surreal colors and because you have you can't color correct or color balance for multiple light sources just as well we can now with some work in in uh, software but back in the darkroom it was you know you balance for the sodium vapor or you balance for the mercury vapor or the fluorescent lights but not for and everything else goes to hell yeah <laughs> but that was you know that was the good thing that was what was cool about it was because you had these really bizarre and surreal colors if you were trying to shoot film at night and get realistic natural colors, forget about it. You know, it's, you just pull your hair out. But now, just as a side note, the, the 
the world is switching from sodium vapor and metal halide lights to LEDs, LED, yeah. it's becoming you know more uniform. It's uniform. more predictable too. Yeah, yeah. the light is more uniform. A lot less yeah. interesting too. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Uh, how about if we just talk five ways, maybe even in terms of the most updated cameras that you know digital photography has made it easier for night photography, and uh, whether that be modes within the camera or just the fact that ISOs are so, you know, you know, so high or so more, more improved? Well, first, of course, is just being able to review the image. Mm -hmm. um, the level of sophistication of the technology that we can, you know, the cameras are a lot more, a lot easier to work with. They're, on one hand, you've got uh, a lot more variables, a lot more controls, but on the other hand, you have just such incredible power at your hand. Hmm. Got any any there, Chris? Um, make it easier. Yeah. I, I mean, I I think more in terms of how it makes it possible to do better images. Mm -hmm. um, hey now. Yeah. Easy there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, let's hear some. No, I mean that industry wide. I yeah, it doesn't make it easier, but yeah, but the people who are really good at it, it gives you more possibilities to uh, push the camera further because now you can push it further and experiment more and do things that you couldn't do before. Uh, so you were talking before about, you know, just being able to do a Milky Way photo. I mean, it was just a few years ago where that was such a huge wow factor. We'd never seen that before. Uh, so I think of it more in those terms. Um, but yeah, you know, high ISO and uh, being able to use a histogram. Um, you know, one of the tricks shooting at night is your eyes get adjusted to the dark. So that LCD in the back of the camera looks brighter right. than it really is. Right. And if you're not paying attention to what your exposure really is, you get home and those photos are dark. Um, so being able to use a histogram, you know, the light meter of the 21st century, uh, to make sure that you really are producing what you intend to produce. Um, right, and having things like, you know, not, not just the histogram, but the blinking highlight indicator or, or focus peaking, um, all these things that theoretically make it easier um, but I think like I think Chris hit it on the head that it's not necessarily easier but there's more flexibility and more adaptability um, and we can we can photograph in virtually any conditions um, you know back back in the film day we were limited to you know three or four days a month around the full moon nobody would go out in the new moon and, and try to photograph. There just wasn't enough light outside of the urban areas to photograph at night uh, with film. And these days, um, we go out into a national park under a full moon and there are no photographers. But if you go out under the new moon and you can't find a place to set up your tripod because hmm. everybody wants to photograph the Milky Way. Yeah. And that, that's actually one of, my, one of my pet peeves is that today people associate night photography with photographing the Milky Way and it's it's become commonplace um, to see that we're all kind of used to that but people have forgotten that you know we have ISOs other than 6400 <laughs> it's, it's, it's true no, but I, I totally agree with you I mean we it, when you see you know you thumb through your Instagram and there's you know a photograph of the Milky Way you know twice a day and from a different photographer and 
it gets a little bit boring, you know. And we talked about this before about you know putting elements in the foreground and and yeah. ways. The stars to make are your, all the yeah. same. It's yeah. what you yeah. frame it with. Yeah. That's the only difference between all the pictures: how you frame it, what you frame it with. It's like it's all there every night. It's there. You right. know? I mean, so it, what do you do with it then? Just up in Cape Cod, Lance uh, had this great idea where uh, Highland Lighthouse, beautiful lighthouse, and had the Milky Way going over. And Lance did a uh, panorama, a stitched panorama of that, um, which is more complicated than it sounds. I mean, doing a stitch pano is, you know, it's not a basic technique to begin with, but on top of it, you've got a lighthouse that's throwing out light Mm -hmm. in the middle of 20 second exposures. And just having to deal with that as an exposure issue, uh, along with a stitch pano, it was was pretty wild to see you tackle that. Yeah, the light's coming around again. Cover the lens real quick. I I was just gonna ask you, did you just keep flipping your hand in front of the lens? Yep, right? that's that's one one technique. Um, Chris actually did a great presentation on photographing lighthouses and different techniques where you could do it either at twilight when the light for the lighthouse and the and the ambient light is balanced. Right. But that's not really night photography. Um, or you can do a um, manual blending of an exposure for the light and another one for everything else. Or uh, HDR where you have you know use software to do layer blending. Um, so, com- yeah, you know, combining the dynamic range of a bright light source like a lighthouse with a starlit landscape and then trying to, you know, combine that with a half a dozen shots with the Milky Way rising over top of it is... Uh, How'd it turn out? Awesome. No- <laughs> uh, um, actually, a, a former student of mine posted a, an image... Uh, stitched panorama of that same lighthouse that she did. Um, and I was asking her about it because uh, it was stunning, better than what I did. And she said that it, it took her three years to get the shot. And that, you know, that's why I'm not worried about people sticking their hand, their, their phone out the airplane window and shooting the Milky Way because, you know, those people are not going to spend three years trying to get one shot. And, you know, she said that it was you know, the thing, the photograph that she's most proud of and deservedly so. And I think that points to an important concept that, yeah, the technology is getting better and there's things that are easy now that were hard before, but the good photographers tend to be the ones who are pushing the limits of the gear. And this better gear just means that there's new limits to explore and there's new photo opportunities that we haven't thought of yet uh, because they weren't possible yesterday. So even though the gear is better and more people are using it and there's more people who think of themselves as photographers, the, the leaders are always going to be the leaders in finding something new to do. And it's a good thing. It's how the industry goes forward. It's why we do images today that we couldn't do yesterday. And it's why there's going to be images tomorrow that we can't do today. Yeah, spot on, Chris. <laughs> good job. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. We were talking a little bit about some of the, the techniques that are available on the, on the latest uh, cameras. And we were going to get back to white balance with something maybe you wanted to talk about. And I, we know some cameras, and you were playing with it, Chris, yourself. You are talking about composite imaging on the right. Olympus cameras, yeah. right, that are new? So, you know, on that list of things that cameras can do today that make uh, life easier or allow you to do better work, 
depending on how you look at it. Right. Um, yeah, you know, white balance, the, the, the ability to be able to flip your white balance mid-shoot is, is something I'd definitely put in that list. You know, when, when you were shooting film and you wanted a different look, you might have to change roles, you know. Uh, if your role wasn't done, maybe you'd have to get a leader retriever and pull it back out again later when you were going to switch back. And now you just we'll change your white balance. carry a separate body for each yeah, film star. Yeah, exactly. Which people now, did. You at a different light situation, change your white balance uh, to what you need it to be. Uh, if you didn't get it right, you can uh, fix it in post-processing, adjust it a bit. I mean, you can really, you're not limited to the three kinds of film you might have in your bag, but you've got the entire color spectrum to work with uh, and really nail what you're trying to do. Yeah, and, and to go along with that, of course, being able to change ISO with every single photograph. You know, you can do a, you know, a a 20 minute star trail exposure at 100 ISO on one shot and then the next frame change it to 6400 and do 15 seconds and have completely different photographs. But yeah, I used to have different film backs in my bag, one for color, um, one for high contrast black and white and one for normal contrast black and white so they'd be indicated, you know, which one would be processed normally, one would be processed in the diaphine or really dilute developer. Is for correct, we're talking about white balance. When you're shooting at night, assuming you're not introducing any kind of artificial lights or the street lights or anything man made going on, are you, is daylight the correct white balance to use? Because we're still working with sunlight ultimately. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I got a little smiles and chuckles here. Let's talk about that. Because uh, uh, it seems to me daylight would become out bluer at night. I'm, I'm just guessing right now. This but is what, what's so? It's one of the most common questions we get on workshops. I mean, this comes up. I, we probably get asked this five times a day, uh, five times a night. Right. <laughs> uh, what white balance should I be using? You should be using the white balance that gives you results that you like. So, so it, there's, it's, it's there's it's no, subjective. Yeah, there's no right or wrong white balance. Um, now, wedding photographers can't get away with that expression. They can't say that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Skin, you know, skin tone is relatively important, but um, moonlight is 4,100 degrees Kelvin. Ah, okay. So, so it's closer to tungsten, actually. Yeah, and we used to shoot tungsten film. If we're shooting color film, we'd right, you mentioned because that, yes. the, the bluish color would give us uh, more of a nocturnal feel. If you shoot night photographs under moonlight at daylight white balance, it looks kind of like a, like a day shot. So, and does that vary with the phase of the moon or is that a constant? Um, it might, not so much the phase of the moon, but the elevation of oh, the moon. Sure, so, yeah. Cause if it's coming Atmospheric. through atmosphere with mm -hmm. a lot of dust or moisture, that'll, you know, like, you know, when the moon's rising, you, it will often appear orange and when it's high right. up in the sky, it's white. Is that so, why? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's I thought it needed point. time to warm up a little bit. Once just... <laughs> Brilliant. And, uh, how about, because this has come up and maybe you guys talk about this and that, what, what's the definition of a night photographer, night photo other than, because you also said earlier when you were taking a picture of the, uh, of the lighthouse that it really wasn't a night photo. So how would you define it, a That gives photo? me an idea for a new workshop program, National Parks at Twilight. <laughs> Would that mean that we have to get up and do sunrise pictures? Yeah, sure. Go on. Okay, that's your job. That's your job. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's funny that you asked that question because, you know, some people get really hung up on, that's not a night photograph. You know, it's, it, there's still a tiny little bit of twilight in the western sky. It's not night yet. Right, right. Um, and a, a lot of 
a lot of people who do night photography, you know, they really say, you know, when it's as dark as it's going to get, that's night photography, and you shouldn't go out and shoot before that. And in fact, my my mentor and teacher Steve Harper had that kind of attitude. Um, but one of my favorite photographers, and I'll say photographer because he considers himself an anytime photographer rather than a day or a night photographer, uh, Michael Kenna, who was the oh, sure. keynote speaker here last year mm -hmm. yep, at, yep. at the Optic Conference. Um, he's known uh, for doing a lot of long exposures and a lot of night night photography. But if you ask him, you know, he's, I'm, a, I'm an anytime photographer and he doesn't he doesn't differentiate and he doesn't particularly care if you know a day photo looks like a night photo or a night photo looks like a day photo it's and and i think that probably comes from uh one of his major influences was bill brandt and brandt was known for you know if if photoshop had been invented in the 1930s brandt would have you know been the evangelist for it because mm -hmm. he tweaked and manipulated his work mm -hmm. in the darkroom to mm -hmm. get an effect that he was looking for. And that kind of speaks yeah. to the, you know, right or wrong white balance question as well. It's, you know, what you're, the effect that you're trying to achieve. Um, so. So can you take a night photo in the daytime? Sure, you put 10, 10 to 13 stops of neutral density on your, on your, in front of your lens. And, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and do, you know, four or five, six minute exposures. Mm -hmm. um, and it only works in specific conditions, right. um, but there, there are photographers like um, David Focos and uh, Michael Levin who've made careers out of that. Um, probably others I'm not thinking of right now. Well, if you go back to early cinema, they didn't oh, photograph at here night. In New York. Yeah, right, yes. Uh, motion pictures, that when they did night scene, it was shot during the day with like dark blue filters to emulate the look of a full moon illumination but it was all shot at daylight they couldn't right. shoot at night it yeah. didn't exist yeah. john ford a lot of those those westerns you know yeah. obviously yeah. pretty yeah. famous for that, that yeah. for night stuff yeah interesting and any other i mean you just mentioned three photographers but are there any other any night photographers or long exposure photographers that you you like to talk about or mention i can't believe you other just asked lance that question how much time do you have mm. <laughs> <laughs> we're here 20 six. minutes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take that long go for it lance well if you ask me that question i'm going to alphabetically i'm, I'm going to talk about you know brisai and bill brandt mm -hmm. and lesser known photographers from history like uh, harold burdekin and john morrison who were inspired by brisai's work um along with many other people uh, the great train photographer o winston link oh and, yes you know mm -hmm. um, the stuff he did in the late 50s uh, was just absolutely mind-boggling. Um, but, you know, for contemporary photographers, there are so many people. Night photography has become specialized. It's not, you're just not a night photographer anymore. You do a particular sort of thing, mm. light painting or light drawing or astrophotography or star trail photography or, you know... Um, uh, any any kind of thing. Um, yeah, I just want to jump some... back to that. You mentioned uh, a Winston Link, whose work I always loved. Um, for those of you not familiar with the name, he photographed trains back in the 50s, very elaborate. Now, would he photographed at night, but would you call him a night photographer? Because his sets were, he lit everything for ridiculous detail. Yes. So yeah. would you still consider that night photography? Well, Sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the he, pictures were taken at night, but I he, look at those and they are so illuminated. Yeah. Well, he he was using his experience as a commercial industrial photographer 
to basically light these enormous sets, and he was solving technical problems. He was, you know, documenting the the last steam railroad in the country, yeah. and wanted to show, illustrate. He was telling stories. You know, he wanted to show these small towns uh, and the life in the small towns as the trains went through, and there really wasn't, you know, doing a long exposure with the train going by through the station. It's not going to tell that story. No. So, so he was using, you know, hundreds of yards of cables and tons of flash case, cases of flash bulbs. Yeah, yeah cases. He, that's right. Yeah, he had, he had uh, custom uh, metal reflectors created, fabricated that would hold, you know, like a dozen flash bulbs because he's trying to light, you know, a, a black steam locomotive and everything and, around right. it. Yeah, right, right. You know. So, you know, I wouldn't, he wasn't a light painter in the sense that light painting is, is typically working with handheld lights, but he certainly was a night the, I'd say the closest you'd come to, hand, to, to light painting in his images, there was one shot where the train's going by and it's going alongside a drive-in movie theater, and you could, he, he held detail on the screen. Well, it's, <laughs> that's, um, that's the one picture he used Photoshop on. <laughs> really? well, he did no, play around with that one? No, I didn't use Photoshop. <laughs> but um, actually, I saw a lecture by his assistant talking about how that image was made. And okay. All of his images, except for that one, were straight shots, single, yeah. single images. Um, but he really wanted to... It's on the screen in the drive-in is uh, an airplane. It's a, a sa a, an F-86 Sabre jet, to be exact. Thank you. I could not have identified it. I... But <laughs> I there's yep. a, there's a train going by the drive-in, and there's a couple of kids sitting in the back of his car, the convertible car, and he, he told them he'd buy them tickets to go to the mov movies if they'd sit there and pose for them. <laughs> but he really wanted to show these multiple modes of transportation, so the image of the plane was printed in the darkroom. Because during the long exposure on the screen, it just went white. Um, a perfect example of that is you ever see Hiroshi Sujimoto's theater series? Oh, yes. Lit by the light of the movie, and the exposure length was determined by the length of the film. Well, it's the same thing. The, the drive-in screen was white from the overexposure, and it made it very easy for him to just print that in in the darkroom. I didn't know that about the, the Sujimoto. The, the exposure time was the length of the movie that was being screened? Yep. Yeah, yeah. he set up in the back of the theater, and the, the trailer came on, and he yeah. opened it up, and the movie was over, and he closed it. it. I just oh, uh, assumed he was just had a white light projected from the projector onto the screen. I didn't realize it was actually during a motion picture. Yes. Play, playing back. That's brilliant. Yeah. And those pictures are amazing. I'm, I'm, I may be mistaken, but I, I thought the name of the photographs was the, was the name of the film. Uh, I'll have to check into that. I think I should okay. have that he may, book. He, he may, he, he may yeah. have the, the name of the theater and the name of the movie, I think. I never even got down to what was written. I was just, just staring at those pictures. I remember them very clearly. Those so, were Chris, amazing. What are you, what's your night photography taking you to right now? Are you doing light painting? Are you doing cityscapes? Or is it all just national parks? And how about astrophotography? What, where are you going? Mostly national parks, okay. yeah. Um, doing some light painting and uh -huh. um, some not, you know, just whatever the situation calls okay. for. All right. Shooting under moonlight, new moon. And do you go out mostly when you're leading a workshop, or do you go out on your own and um, experiment with new things? Both, both. It's a, you know, a lot of what I'm doing is related to a workshop, whether it's on a workshop or preparing for a workshop or scouting a location for a possible workshop. Um, you know, just because, just from a business perspective, I'm trying to. Uh, layer responsibilities onto a trip and um, you know maximize the investment. But uh, yeah, I mean, anytime I get to spend in the national park is 
it's good for me. Sure. But during, you know, during a workshop, we generally don't have a whole lot of time to photograph for ourselves. So we typically build in a couple of days on the, you know, either end of the workshop to reserve for ourselves to photograph. And are you guys always trying something new or? Um, I, I have a couple of different series of bodies of work that, uh, you know, long-term projects that are, that are going on. And um, one of them is uh, in, in national parks, the... Uh, Lovely architecture of the outhouses. It's a project called Lose with Views. <laughs> so try, you know, I, trying to find, uh, I, I often photograph the, you know, human element mm -hmm. in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that probably comes from, from Michael Kenna. Uh, he does as well. And it's so that kind of a goofy series. And, you know, I don't know what's ever going to come of that. But I hope you finish it. I look forward to it. I think it'd be a great series. There's some amazing photos. You know, it sounds... Uh, uh, just like fun when mm -hmm. you hear them describe uh -huh, it. Yeah. But the photos are really cool. I'll bet. They're, I'll bet. they're really something. And are you lighting, light painting the, the bathrooms oh, themselves? Yeah, I and, wouldn't yeah. be doing this if it wasn't. It's all about lighting, paint, light painting light the structures. Painting. Yeah. 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 Well, Th thankfully, photographs don't have any odor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that Sony's working on that actually. So. Yeah. He has scratch and stiff <laughs> sensors they're coming out with, I understand. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Are there any particular spots that you guys love to photograph? I, mean, I know you guys are, you know, national parks guys, but other than that, any countries, locations, particular parks? Uh, oh, I, I can't get enough of Olympic National Park. Uh, we're doing two workshops there in September, and I can't even tell you how much I'm looking forward to. I'd be spending 17 days there, like, you know. And do you guys camp when you're there, or you guys get hotels uh, nearby? Sometimes. If, if we're in a workshop, we're usually in a hotel because... You know, we, we need to be able to sleep well and shower so we can be presentable and coherent for the, the class in the morning. But, um, yeah, if I'm out on my own, I, I have no problem camping. I'll bring a tent with me. And um, I, One, I like camping. It reminds me of childhood, camping with my dad and camping with my family. And, um, but also it gets you closer to the location, right? You know, if you want to, um, I, I hate to bring up daylight, but if you wanted to shoot sunrise, you know, you could drive an hour from the hotel to your spot or you could camp next to it and get up in the morning figuring and shoot. out the dynamics of these guys' workshops yeah. here. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you were talking about, you know, half or more of night photography being the experience of being out there and camping out in nature. It just, you know, amplifies that experience and makes it a, a more, you know, inclusive, holistic sure. thing to... Um, you know, we were talking about that in Joshua Tree. Jeez, um, I wish we were camping out here. Yeah. You know? yeah. Part of it is, you know, being able to um, set up a, a, a tripod for a, a stack of long exposures. You're going to do a, you know, couple hours of star trails. You can just crawl in your tent, leave the camera going, yeah. and then, you know. Yeah. Or the, up, or the idea up. of doing a, an all night exposure. I mean, it, you want to leave your $5,000 camera and $2,000 lens in the wilderness when you go back to the hotel, or would you rather camp next to it? Well, Michael you know? Kenner actually spoke. He used to, for a lot of his pictures, he would leave his camera, set them up, and then go back and go to sleep and come back in the morning and collect it all. Sure. But he'd leave his cameras in different places. Yeah. Sure, but do you want to? I don't. Me? No. <laughs> I'd rather just camp next to it. I said yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask quickly about lenses, if there's anything that comes to mind. Um, well, in, in terms of lenses, um, fast glass makes it easier, especially if you're going to be going for those star points or Milky Way shots. Uh, you know, you're pushing the limits of ISO aperture and shutter speed to get to be able to do this. So, you know, wide, fast lenses are, are always the best. 
Um, Do you find a big difference shooting at wide aperture for this type of work as opposed to stopping now a little bit? Is there a big difference in image quality? Um, it all depends on what your tolerance is for image quality and also what you're doing with your images. You know, if they're, okay. if they're living on Facebook, no. You know, if you're yeah. making mural-sized prints, sure, of course. Um, but at this point right now, we're... Like, you know, like I said, we're pushing the limits of all three exposure variables to be able to photograph uh, the starry night sky. And so, you know, being able to shoot at 2.8 or faster is, is pretty much a requirement. You know, you've, you're going to have to compromise somewhere. There's a balance you have to strike, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of, of lenses, uh, particular lenses, the, you know, the Nikon 14 to 24, um, and the more recent uh, Tamron 15 to 30, both 2.8 lenses are extraordinary. They're big, heavy beasts, but... Even wide open, though, the resolving power and the contrast and the yep. flare control is, is really astonishing on those. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I haven't played with it, but I understand the, uh, the third incarnation of the Canon 16 to 35 2.8 is vastly improved as well. Um, but there's, there are... Um, new, new and interesting options coming out. There's the, the whole line of Rokinon lenses that have been made wide, fast glass, affordable for people. And um, we just had at the last couple of workshops these IRIX lenses. It's a, oh, yeah. a new uh, joint, joint Todd thing. Todd was just using those. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, a joint venture between uh, Swiss engineering and Korean manufacturing. And they're... Um, they have a feature that allows you to lock the focus ring once you achieve focus. And that's a, that's a big issue with night photography when you're shooting wide open and focus has to be so precise and critical. So there's... And are you focusing in just with your eye at this point or do you, are you using the tools of digitals of... Um, I'm, I'm using the same focusing technique that I used 25 years ago in hyperfocal, basically. Okay because I want to maximize the depth of field because I'm shooting at very wide apertures. Um, I'm not usually doing just distant horizon and, and sky. I've got foreground right. elements and I want to have maximized my depth of field. So I use hyperfocal. Okay. All right. Chris, uh, what would you like to plug? Upcoming uh, books, trips, seminars? Um, yeah, well, we've got, so I just, I just did well, both of us just did three workshops over the course of about five weeks, uh, two of them together. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've got, I think, one that's going to be really cool. Neither one of us are working on it, but uh, Gabe Biederman and Tim Cooper, our other, our other two business partners, along with Matt Hill, they're leading a workshop in Dry Tortugas National Park, uh, which is an uh, island yeah. uh, park about 60 miles off of Key West, and it's going to be based on a boat. Uh, shooting at night. The park has opened up the fort to us at night. It's usually closed, so we're going to get some great access. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. I, I wish I was going to be on that. When's that going to be? Uh, that's, in, that's next month. It's in July. Okay. Uh, and then... Uh, Spots still available, as far as you know? Uh, there are two. There are two people here at the conference who are asking about it, so we might... Fingers crossed. But right yeah. now, there's two. So okay. if, um, uh, And then uh, Lance is going to be in West Fjords. Um, great sand dunes. Those are both in August. Yeah, those those are both in August and and both full. But right now we're working on our calendar for next year, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff. We're going to be expanding our schedule and um, branching out, reaching out, doing a, uh, more workshops than than this year. 
um, just the response has been so great and we just want to explore new places. So, Go to nationalparksatnight.com. Our alumni gets uh, first notice and then our email list gets second notice and then we go public. How many people do you have as repeat uh, voyagers? Oh, you just figured that out. What? How many was, was it? it? 26%, I think. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We and have our Olympic uh, workshop uh, the first week. I think a, th a third of the participants are from previous workshops, which is, which is great. Um, and what's the ratio to teacher to student? Ma so maximum of seven to one. Right. Um, yeah. um, with the night photography thing, people, when they first do it, they either get it or they don't. And like, like myself, they end up being, you know, converts for life. And, or some, you know, some people, it just doesn't work for them. They're, you know, they can't stay out late or they can't, you know, get used to stumbling around in the dark. But uh, I'd say probably at least half the people that get into night photography on one level stick with it. And a lot of those people, you know, whether or not they're doing multiple workshops with us or with somebody else or just going out on their own, it, it becomes a, a lifelong passion, uh, as it certainly is for, for the five of us. I know also there's a comfort level that comes, you know, you're out shooting in the wilderness in the dark. It's more comfortable to be around other people yeah. than to be out there alone. I mean, sure. I've done it a bunch and there's still times that I'm out alone in the middle of nature and there's bears out there. There's bears. <laughs> you know, your mind can play tricks on you. Um, it's just more comfortable, the safety yeah, and numbers. Sure. It's also nice to just have other people to work with sure. in general. But even with night photography, it's nice to be able to ask somebody, hey, could you shine a light on that so I can focus? Or um, can you help me with the light painting? It's a, you know, we have a complex concept. It's maybe easier to pull off if you have a person or two helping you. So even if you're not on a workshop, if you're going out shooting at night, it's just great to be with other people yeah. for all those reasons. All right. Lance Kymig and Chris Nicholson, thank you guys so much for stopping by. In National Parks at Night. National Parks at Night. And uh, there's always something new to shoot out there, eh? There is. Thank you for having us. Okay. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Cool. Bye -bye.